have a special panel planned for you today where we have some of the world's most senior foreign policy experts joining us in a panel discussion where they'll be taking us through the current covid crisis and what impact will it have on immigration so without any further ado i would like to uh, i would like to welcome ambassador peter burley mr raman sidhu ambassador navdeep sarna and ambassador anil patwa thank you so much everyone for joining us it's truly an honor to have you with us today right now so before we uh, move on to the panel very quickly i would like to introduce our panelists for today and after that i'll also introduce uh, our moderator mr raman sidhu who has been very kind and very generous to have joined us in today's discussion i'll start with ambassador burley so uh, Peter Burley has served as an ambassador and deputy representative to the United uh, of the United States to the United Nations from August 97 until December 1999. He was in charge of the mission from September 98 to August 99. He has also represented the United States in the Security Council, the General Assembly, and at other major United Nations bodies. During his period uh, in charge at the United Nations Security Council, he was in charge of Iraq, Kosovo, and East Timor crisis, along with many African issues, and he has also served as the U.S. ambassador to Sri Lanka and concurrently as the ambassador to Maldives, and has held has and held senior positions from 1985 till 1987. He was also the head of department responsible for Iran and Iraq, and earlier in his career, he was the deputy director of Saudi Arabia and Gulf and the Emirates. he has also served in united states embassies in nepal bahrain india as well as sri lanka such a phenomenal person joining us today thank you so much peter thank you so much ambassador very welcome thank you thank you next we come on to ambassador anil wadwa ambassador anil wadwa is a member of the elite indian foreign services and he has uh, he's uh, uh, he he's been an ambassador of india to italy and san marino thailand oman Poland and Lithuania, and has served in Hong Kong and Beijing twice. Permanent mission of India in Geneva, and has worked on deputation with organization for prohibition of chemical weapons in the Hague, where he headed their media and public affairs and government relation branches. Ambassador Wadwa was also the head of East European Division in Ministry of External Affairs in New Delhi, and looked after relations with Russia and Eastern European countries. as secretary in the ministry of external affairs he has overseen relations with asean southeast asia australia new zealand and the pacific at the uh, gcc middle east and west asia it is my pleasure to welcome ambassador anil wadwa thank you so much ambassador wadwa thank you moving on to our next panelist my pleasure to uh, extend a very warm welcome to ambassador navdeep sarna who's not just a foreign service uh, uh, foreign services professional he is also an author a translator and was also india's ambassador to the us and israel he also served as the high commissioner to the court of st james he was the longest serving spokesperson of the indian forest ministry for 6 years under two prime ministers three foreign ministers and four foreign secretaries till the end of his term in 2008 he has served as a diplomat in moscow warsaw thimphu Geneva, Tehran, and Washington D.C., and has served as India's ambassador to Israel from 2008 to 2012. High Commissioner to the U.K. in 2016, and India's ambassador to U.S. from November 2016 to December 2018, and retired from Indian Foreign Services on 31st of December 2018 after serving the country for 36 years. 
my warm welcome to ambassador nafte sir thank you and coming on to uh, our esteemed moderator for today someone who has a long relationship with speakin it is my honor and i would like to extend my warmest welcome to mr raman sidhu who is the chief executive officer of the ebg federation india and the national spokesperson of the european economic group eeg india he is the independent board director at zeland technologies limited independent board director at premica food industries co-founder and president of public affairs forum of india life trustee of the foundation for aviation and sustainable tourism senior advisor at team group senior advisor at accord india member of the advisory council of speakin bureau he has in the past worked as a corporate and investment banker with rainless bank parkless bank parkless visit with hsbc securities and capital markets india private limited fidelity fund management and deutsche bank ag in india thank you so much mr sidhu for joining us today and i am sure you know everyone here is more than excited everyone here is eager to listen to your kind of every now uh, request to carry the discussion forward over to you thank you thank you very much uh, a very good day to friends uh, the year 2020 will remain etched in our collective memories as a, as a time when the world was struck by the covid-19 crisis the magnitude of this has been such that it has negatively impacted human peace welfare and lives it has also battered the economic theories and to- tools which have so long underpinned the world economic edifice and left us all with a lot of legitimate apprehensions of the way forward as we friends traverse through these turbulent times of this virus which has no half life and is not going to go miraculously away it's not going to disappear in 40 days or 60 days clanging of kitchen utensils lighting of candles tapasya prayers notwithstanding something we have to live with and we have to move on with it uh, it has impacted us as i said in many ways and we will come immediately to that i will start uh, by uh, welcoming again our eminent and esteemed diplomat panelists on this webinar event rightly titled immigration post covid 19 and look at the travails of indian students professionals workers nris uh, who are at the moment spread all over the world uh, i will start by posing questions to ambassador anil wadwa anil how do you envisage the future unfolding for indian students who after high school were to embark on a higher education or have partly finished higher education or completed this and await a job abroad uh, indian students who have ignored applying to indian colleges in this thought process and perhaps may have to pay a price indian students who paid high advance fees and residential costs indian students who were promised jobs which have or can be withdrawn uh, getting on to indians employed but who potentially face redundancies in the countries that they are working in because as this crisis unfolds as unemployment grows there may be a preference which to some extent is natural where locals will be preferred nris coming to nris specifically because you've served a lot in the gulf and the middle east and which has a large number of nris they also are a source of a huge amount of remittance 
back home to their families for investments. Families primarily. It is 50% of the total NRI money that flows into the country year on year. Layoffs in the countries they are in, where they are getting all this money, which they keep remitting on a regular basis to the country. And the track record has been very, very good in terms of sending money back. With the sole exception of 2009-10, when we had a balance of payment problem in the country. Uh, this will be the key pain point, I think, for the Indian economy, uh, which we know has a current account deficit which can be negatively impacted. The oil price downtrend offset notwithstanding. Uh, but at the same time, on the positive side, the FII, sorry, on the negative side, the FII flows, inflows have been lower because the outflows have been lower because of the negative returns that uh, they have been getting on their investments in the country. I want to just uh, stop for a moment and I want to also tell uh, Ambassador Peter Burley and Ambassador Nathya Sarna that some of these questions will also apply to you and I don't want to get into a repetition. So when your time comes, please do address these questions in the context of the countries you have served in and the Indian population that is based in those countries. Uh, third question, NRIs in the rest of the world with European, Southeast Asian and US family links. Due to uh, diminishing job prospects in, say, Africa, Middle East, and Gulf, they may perhaps be looking to apply for large-scale migration to some of the countries you all have served in. What would be the attitudes of the governments in, that, in some of the developed world to these potential migration candidates? I will come to one or two specific questions as we move on from Ambassador Vadva to uh, uh, Ambassador Burley and to Ambassador Sarna, but I'll come to that later and they will be shorter in terms of the time I have taken now. So over to you, Anil. Well, Raman, thank you so much for um, um, for in inviting me to speak first. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say how wonderful it is to be here and to connect with the Speak In webinar audience. Let me start by saying that we all hope that this pandemic is only temporarily severed the physical contacts uh, in this world, for which solutions will need to be found very quickly. And also for economic reasons, I think it's important that the travel and the air industry are resuscitated. Uh, we also hope that the pandemic um, <clears throat> dies down substantially uh, and that we find a vaccine shortly and that this phenomena will be as temporary as can be. Having said that, let me come to uh, your question on migration and i make two general points first and I'll come to the specific uh, issue about students and migrants that you raised. Uh, first of all, my first general point is that uh, global migration is as old as history and people have always moved for uh, reasons of fulfilling a need in their lives, um, which they could not do by staying at home. Uh, so as the world has developed, therefore, um, there are trained technical labor, for example, which has always been in a comparative advantage. And while we talk about the movement of capital and goods and services, uh, the movement of natural persons is also one of the four ways to which services can be supplied uh, internationally. And that is what we call mode four. And, uh, you know, we actually negotiated a very robust agreement uh, for that purpose. Second general point I'd like to make is that a combination of uh, pandemic-induced recession globally 
and uh, travel restrictions are bound to have a disproportionate impact on migration in the near future. That's a given. Uh, also, countries will be less likely to open their borders in future unless they are benefited in the process or they feel safe enough to do so. So let me come from there to the point about students, which you raised. See, there are 752,000 Indian students studying in around 90 countries in the world. And close to 52% of these students are in the United States, Canada, and Australia. Uh, so if you take the you know, breakdown of the major countries, um, there are about 211,000, for example, for USA, 124,000 for Canada, 87,000 for Australia. And then Saudi Arabia, UAE, New Zealand, and UK, etc., you know, bring up the rate. Uh, and of course, there is a sprinkling of students all around the world. So every year we have around 400,000 Indian students who go abroad to study. So there is no doubt that this year we'll see a very large drop in cross-border movement of students as the academic calendar gets disrupted. But not, that's not a phenomenon only for Indian students, it's for all students across the world. In this situation, the problem that students face in academia across the world and again, not just faced by Indian students. Uh, although we have, to, we have seen how long-distance learning can be adapted, although this is not an entirely satisfactory solution, and depends on many optimal factors. Many of them are not functioning uh, optimally these days. So one does not know how long this pandemic will last, but I'm hopeful that the universities will not be shut for too long. Now, if they do, more solutions for distance learning will have to be found and streamlined. And the fees charged rationalized proportionately, I'm sure, sooner than later. Uh, India is also a very attractive um, a place for foreign universities who regularly come down uh, over here to recruit students, as we all know. And Indian students studying abroad are also an asset uh, to the economies where they study. So I see this only as a temporary blip for reasons which suit both sides. And let's not forget, uh, there are also foreign students who will continue to come to India uh, from countries like Iran, from Southeast Asia and Africa. So in my view, um, taking the overall picture, the number is not so large and all sides will benefit by streamlining the future of students who have chosen to study abroad this year and whose parents are currently uh, an anxious lot. But to me, a larger issue uh, of concern immediately is the presence of these uh, students away from India in foreign universities or cities uh, where they are enrolled uh, with uncertain future of uh, travel opening up or resumption of their classes. So this will bring about an induced isolation is already brought that about and students and parents will learn, have to learn to cope with the anxiety of a long separation, uh, which is not uh, very easy to overcome. Second issue that you raised was about uh, the migrants. Uh, if you take the figures, again, India is a country with uh, 28.2 million of its guys for abroad. Uh, there are 12.6 million non-resident Indians, whom we call NRIs in short, and 15.6 million people of Indian origin, who are spread across more than 200 countries and territories uh, across the world. Now, a distinction has to be made here, in my view, between non-resident Indians and people of Indian origin. Uh, the number of people of Indian origin have acquired local nationalities and have, but have maintained family contact uh, in India and other parts of the world. So the, for the purpose of our discussion, let us um, 
confine ourselves to non-resident Indians. Now, of these, 8.9 million of them live in just six countries, and 70% of Indian citizens are in six West Asian nations. The largest number, 3.4 million now, live in the United Arab Emirates, um, and uh, 2.8 million in Saudi Arabia, while Kuwait, Oman, where I had the privilege to serve, Qatar and Bahrain, are home to another 2.9 million uh, non-resident Indians. So in the Gulf, as they do in the rest of the world, the migrant Indians who are uh, blue and white collar workers, both fulfill a very definite need uh, and will continue to do so. Uh, the Gulf, um, more than remittances, actually provided uh, much needed jobs for the working class Indians, initially from Kerala state, uh, but increasingly also from the Indian states of Uttar Pradesh and Bihar. In the short term, uh, I see this now as a much reduced safety wall. So until the pandemic is um, completely settled, however, uh, we will see changes in the way people across the world do business. In the Gulf, of course, uh, scaling down of industries and construction, uh, depressed oil prices, that's a very important factor now, uh, and changing domestic policies as, as a result of that uh, will affect uh, labor. Uh, so I do see the possibility of some retrenchment of Indians who will have to come back. Let us take the case of Kerala, which is a state in India from which most Indians migrate uh, to the Gulf for work. And as of now, Kerala has 100,000 return immigrants who could not go back, mind you, uh, due to the closure of airports uh, in the Gulf earlier and in India later. Uh, secondly, around 30,000 new immigrants uh, could not go to the Gulf in spite of having employment visas. So they are stuck in Kerala. And given the economic downturn and the effects of the pandemic, uh, I would uh, hazard a guess by you know, saying that another 100,000 perhaps could return by September. But I would say that everything is not bad news. Uh, because post-pandemic, there is a lot of talk on restructuring the value chains and moving away from countries like China. And the trend, of course, will be to move uh, the production chains closer to market, as we call it. Uh, and India is expected to be one of the beneficiaries. I wouldn't say the main one, um, but one of the beneficiaries. And in these circumstances, if some manufacturing moves to India, it should be easier to create employment opportunities in India itself. And states like Kerala, in fact, have already started putting plans in place uh, to absorb this labor and employ them in accordance with their skills. In countries like the United States and Southeast Asia and larger parts of Europe, a majority of non-resident Indians and persons of Indian origin are quite well qualified. So I do not see much effect except temporary difficulties for them uh, for this lot but I fear that contract labor in countries like Italy, engaged in uh, mozzarella, in winemaking and horticulture industries, uh, will come under pressure. So there are 190,000 Indian nationals or people of Indian origin who live and work in Italy, uh, out of which at least 90,000 uh, work on contracts in these industries. And okay. given the impact <laughs> of uh, COVID-19 on countries like Italy, I see them coming under tremendous strain for the moment. Oh, Only on the issue of remittances. Um, it is true that India, uh, whose nationals remit $80 billion annually, has been the largest beneficiary of uh, migration needs and globalization. 
but the world bank has estimated now that uh, remittances will shrink by about 20% globally and remittances for india it has been estimated could decline by 23% so the predicted fall in gulf remittances will partially offset the gains to the balance of payments of india offered by lower oil prices and north america of course provides uh, another substantial segment of india's remittances Yes. But as immigrants, there are more middle class. These remittances, I feel, are less likely uh, to fall. And let so, us not forget that though the Gulf, though the Gulf uh, uh, remittances, yeah. while remaining an important foreign exchange uh, offer, have been declining in importance to India's overall yeah. balance of payments. Okay. And on that note, we'll have to shift. Uh, we're running out of time. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, over to Ambassador Peter Berle, and we're talking of North America. So I thought that's an appropriate time. to uh, move over, over to you in lauderdale and uh, fort lauderdale so uh, given all this somewhat gloomy of course analysts try to cover all that in as comprehensive a manner as possible not very easy in the short time given but in the usa your administration led by mr trump has also given a, another whammy in terms of the green card suspension a complete halt on the the visa system visa processing for indian migrants and others there's also the question of the of the hib visas for professionals uh jobs as the recession grows deeper in the states like in other countries and which will lead to job uh, uh, retrenchment uh, again there would be a preference that will develop naturally which will be for local americans perhaps you know even to the extent of caucasians um how do you react uh, peter to what will france guys uh, uh, what will happen in usa and how will the administration react to some of these issues and the future credibility also please government of the american universities who have taken large fees and are not providing ongoing classes or even online sessions at the moment over to you peter oh, thank you yes thank you Uh, let me just make some broad um, comments about the context and, and in which I think it makes sense to look at what's going on in the U.S. now. Uh, there are two things going on simultaneously. Once of one, of course, is the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, which has hit the U.S. Uh, extremely hardly. I'll get to that in a minute. I think you all are aware of that. Um, but the other is we're in the middle of a uh, presidential election campaign, and immigration in general, not related to India, but in general, is a highly contentious uh, political issue in the U.S. And it looks like it may be uh, developing into uh, one of the core uh, debates that will crystallize around the November election of a of a new president. or of a re-election of president trump so <clears throat> i would argue that it's uh important to look both at short term uh challenges and then longer term ones and also uh, given the contentious political situation here now that post november uh one could imagine either a continuation or even an acceleration of the policies that president trump and his supporters Hi. have promoted or a very substantial change if uh, former vice president biden is elected in in november uh his orientation and that of his party and uh i would say 
assuming he wins, uh, if he does win the election, uh, a majority of Americans would be to have a, a pretty dramatic change in uh, immigration policy. Uh, that again depends uh, dramatically on the results of the November election. And in particular with regard to laws, immigration laws in the US, whether the Senate, our Senate, our upper house, stays in the control of the Republicans as it is now, or whether if Biden were to become president, if the Democratic Party also won the Senate and keeps the House, which it's the majority in now, then there's a, a potential for uh, actual changes in laws. Um, and the orientation, I think, of, the, of Mr. Biden and the Democratic Party in general uh, is to be, in a general sense, more favorable to immigration across the board, but with some caveats now. And the caveats relate back to the pandemic and the, the crisis, the economic crisis the U.S. is in now. 26 million Americans have lost their jobs in five weeks. 26 million. And that's uh, the number who have applied for unemployment insurance. It's probably higher than that. Uh, so you can get a sense of this is, uh, in our system, uh, highly dramatic. Huge. Yes, it's a huge thing. And so any political want to put primary focus on getting those Americans back into, into work and reopening our economy. We are, like India, very much locked down. Major aspects of our economy are not functioning now, although core functions, core governmental functions, and both at the national level and at the state level and local level continue, of course, but um, major sectors of the economy are essentially shut down. You, you mentioned earlier um, tourism and travel and so on. All of that is uh, really at, at ground zero here now. Uh, and that impacts, we're yeah. largely, as you all know, a service economy. And so many aspects of the uh, national scene here in the U.S. have been very badly damaged by this um, uh, pandemic and uh, uh, controversial, possibly in reaction of the government to the, the challenge that the, the virus and its spread. Um, uh, we have lost, I think, uh, the last number I saw yesterday was a, around 56,000 Americans have died in the pandemic, 56,000. Uh, uh, a huge number have been infected. And because we don't know uh, exactly uh, what happens with people who have been infected and whether they become immune after uh, uh, surviving their infection and coping with it either naturally or through medical intervention. Uh, we don't know if those people are now immune. Uh, we don't know for sure. The hope is that they are, as with many viruses, where once you've been infected, your body has uh, develops antibodies. But there's a huge question there then too, because we have very large numbers of people who've been infected and, and are testing inadequate so far nationally. Some states are doing a better job than others, but in general, there's been a slow uh, response to uh, developing adequate, uh, reliable tests um, for the virus. So that's another problem. So what I'm describing here is a, a, a political and economic system that is very much uh, in crisis in different ways. 
and also somewhat unpredictable as to what to expect. And so stepping back for a moment and wondering about how should um, an Indian citizen who wishes to come to the U.S. either as a student or for working, how to make plans for the immediate future is very much up in the air. I don't think we can uh, uh, avoid that conclusion now. The good news is that even with the recent uh, announcement by the president of a sort of freeze, uh, what we call green card issuance and, and visas in general, um, it is limited to 60 days. It probably, I, I quite possibly could be extended, I would imagine, after the 60 days. So I think that between now and at least um, perhaps September, but more, more importantly, up to our November election, uh, I think uh, drawing uh, final conclusions or even guesstimates yeah. about how to plan your life is very much up in the air. And I think it's, uh, it has the risks of the unknown, let's say. So those are my major points with Thank regard you. to, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pass it back to you then. Thanks. Thank you very much, Peter. Sure. Uh, that, that was also very comprehensive, given the time, uh, which leads me on to uh, Ambassador Natesh Sarna. Uh, on related points, we are still in the USA in terms of your expertise, Natesh, and you would have dealt with a lot of people there, and some of these things will be coming back to you as we move on to you. Uh, but could you also concentrate on this whole issue of professionals and HIV visas? and uh, the whole question of jobs. And thirdly, the credibility at stake of the, of the leading American universities, because if the Ivy League admission meant getting reaching Shangri-La for a lot of Indians, uh, that uh, impression is getting eroded because of what is happening currently in the States. Well, let me not say more on that, but over to you. And if you could address all these, plus also what I had posed earlier to Anil. As I said, you know, some of them relate to you as well. Uh, thank you very much, Raman. It's a great pleasure being here and, and uh, listening to my various esteemed colleagues uh, who've spoken uh, before me. I think there's a great advantage in being, being the third speaker because I think a lot of fundamental points have been made, ground has been covered, and I will try not to uh, repeat that. Uh, but I, I, I think, uh, let me just say that uh, where Peter uh, was uh, leaving off, I think if there's one word which can describe this entire situation, it is uncertainty. Because this is not, this is not a usual year, it's not a usual pandemic, if there is anything like a usual pandemic. And I think the world is in a tremendous turmoil. And this is a process of adjustment that will happen, perhaps not over weeks, perhaps over years. So I think immigration is a subset of this uncertainty. And I think the student and the professional issue is an even smaller subset of this uncertainty. So I would hesitate to sort of define a paradigm for any small subset uh, without looking at the broader uh, uncertainty. And I think in the, in the time available, I'll just try to make broad comments. I won't go into detail. I, I think the first thing we have to see is that the, the most countries have been not only hit on the health front, they've been hit on the economic front. So there is, for instance, in the countries like UK, United States, Canada, Australia, 
and these you know the the western so to speak destinations of our uh, immigration i think there is hugely depressed demand that's one thing which is likely to continue for a long time uh, the second is unemployment peter mentioned 26 million people employ uh, applying for employment benefits i can just tell you that when i looked at this figure about 4 or 5 days ago it was 18 million so it has really jumped in in the last uh, and people are losing jobs all over it's going to happen in india and it's happening uh, elsewhere and the third thing is that the health systems of all countries are under tremendous pressure so all these three factors led together means uh, that we don't want outsiders we don't want more burden on our health system uh, we can't give jobs to our own people so how can we give jobs to other people this at a very basic level in a way this crisis is actually accelerating the trend on immigration which we have seen since 2016 arrival of president trump and i i get the point that peter is making that if there is a democratic transition or a democratic transition then this could change but i think it may not change as much as it would have changed in normal circumstances mm-hmm. i think a certain amount of resistance to immigration is is there to stay and that is the context in which president trump's 60 day ban on green cards of course there are several caveats in that i think that has to be seen uh, you you particularly wanted to talk of h1b visas i think the h1b visa system has been a potential worry for india uh, because indians are the largest beneficiaries of the h1b by by any uh, any stretch any stretch and but the important thing is that the h1b visas while they are given to indians are not all for indian companies the important thing is that only about 17 or 18% of the h1b visas actually go into indian companies working in the united states most of them go to big behemoths like facebook google amazon etc where indians have gone and actually helped make those country, uh, companies globally uh, competitive so that has to be kept in mind so far uh, there has been you know uh, Uh, sort of not an attack on the h1b uh, system there has been a tightening of the systems there were some abuses in the system which have been which have been tightened up how this will go in the future uh, let me come to that uh, in in a minute uh, i think there is going to be uh, several trends which are going uh, which are quite obvious one of them is going to be a re- regaining of economic sovereignty given the fact that they you don't want to supply lines as anil mentioned you know stretched all the way to china uh, the unreliability that is involved there a lot of countries are going to go for economic sovereignty let's make our own masks for instance uh, i mean i'm just giving an example yeah. but but in everything now which country can actually do this all or on their own or which country will need professionals and which country will be able to supply those professionals i think that will be the critical thing for instance if you see president trump's order executive order there is a caveat that anybody coming for health work or nurses or doctors or helping with covid uh, they will they will be allowed so there's already a caveat there so if in the coming years you are going to help 
countries regain economic security, I, I think your professionals will, will still, be, uh, still be welcome. I think the uh, other aspect is going to be how much investment you're going to be able to take. For instance, countries like Australia, countries uh, like Canada, and these are aging societies, low birth rates, low populations. They want people. And if you people go there and also take money, I think that that is going to be ultimately be welcome. Of course, in the short run, I think all this is on hold. You, you used to have uh, 800,000 international flights a week carrying 100 million travelers, whether for tourism or for work or for meetings or for conferences, that's all on hold. So definitely about 180 countries have put in travel restrictions. That's going to have an impact on short-term movement, whether it's for migration or for study or for tourism or for anything. That is a given. But I am now talking over things when things begin to stabilize a bit. Let me quickly come to your subset of students. Yeah, because we need to wind up. Yeah, I think you need to yeah. wind up. I think the, uh, the universities are not going to let their name get tarnished so easily. I think a lot of the universities are already offering deferments. They are offering uh, people uh, online um, uh, studies for at least six months. Some, most of the big universities have allowed people, not turned out people, some have actually, including Harvard, and said, please go home. Now, of course, that brings in the whole problem of how do they go home when there are no flights? And where do sure. they go? But a lot of universities, I think, once the immediate shock goes, they will do move to protect their integrity, they protect their, their reputation. And also, the UK, for instance, it's the international students are a huge source of money. The sure. universities are under huge pressure. They, they are, there's going to be an estimated loss of two and a half billion pounds uh, to the university sector, a lot of which is due to an expected fall in international students. So sooner or later, they'll try to yeah. square this. So I'll stop here. I know yes. you need to take questions. Well, yeah. Thank you very, very much. Yes, uh, you know, the current worry, as Anil had also referred to it, was what, what about the students who are stuck there and the parents, you know, worried about how do we get them out? You know, they, uh, but that's something that's what gets resolved in the right way. Uh, there are some questions, as I can see, uh, that are developing. But uh, at this point in time, thank you very, very much for the very succinct answers that you could come up with, given the time constraints. And I think we've been able to cover a lot with those uh, words. I'm going to hand it over to Himanshu again to take on the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sidhu. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for the fantastic insights that you've been, that you've shared over such a burning issue right now. I'm sure people have benefited a lot from this discussion. However, whatever remains uh, should be covered in the questions that we've received from some of the people who are watching this live. So uh, my first question is from one of our attendees who's uh, mentioned that, uh, thank you for your time today. My question specifically relates to immigration to countries such as UK, Canada, and Australia. What is the panel's opinion for immigration to these countries specifically? A very interesting question indeed, I must say, because India has a lot of diaspora in Canada and Australia, and a lot of people are working in the Europe as well. So I think this question particularly relates to, you know, what uh, what what are we seeing? Uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure uh, some of the ground has already been covered in our discussion, but 
uh, talking specifically in terms of professionals who are wanting to move abroad and in terms of students who are willing to study abroad what is the future what is in it for uh, them in the future so i think uh, uh, so what would you like to take this question yeah let me start uh, okay so so let me let me uh, say that um, you know partly this question has been answered already uh, but uh, i like to say that there are if you look at the um, executive order of, of uh, united states like uh, navtej mentioned you have some exceptions over there uh, and at the moment uh, countries who are facing a difficulty with regard to their own national finding jobs so obviously you will look at the exceptional areas so we are in times right now where we have to pass this period get over it and then we can look at what can open up but at the moment i see uh, that the preference of these countries would be only for the sectors in which there is need uh, specifically the health sector for example uh, people who are specialists um, you know um, and and who can help the country in terms of need who don't take away jobs of those who already lost them because those people have to be accommodated as well so obviously the focus is on those but i would place um, australia and canada in a little different category than the united states here um why because there is there is a inherent shortage and gaps in the economy which need to be filled not at the moment because there's no travel around so once travel opens up uh, then the needs will remain the same i i don't see that going away uh, and uh, there are certain sectors like especially in the it industry for example for australia uh, where there is a huge gap uh and again it enabled services there is a huge gap uh, and then of course there are these specialized uh, um you know um facility management for instance is a very big field in australia there is a large scope for countries who can provide manpower or trained manpower for these services and uh, trained uh, you know plumbers electricians uh, who got certified uh, through courses which are recognized in australia uh, so i'm is uh, quite hopeful that those will continue uh, to be open uh, at the same time uh, you know in aging populations like karana uh, which navdej also mentioned i think there are certain gaps there which uh, will continue for the foreseeable future uh, but all this depends on um, how quickly we can get back to little semblance of normalcy very well answered very well answered ambassador bad by i mean uh, i'm i'm sure uh, the uh, i'm sure whoever has asked this question the name of the person is not mentioned here unfortunately uh, has the question answered thank you so much for that uh, my next question is uh, pertaining to the gulf region because gulf region is you know something where a lot of indian diaspora specifically from south india has uh, you know very strong connections with and they usually go there as construction workers in the construction sector itself so my question uh, this question is from mr arjun yadav and arjun is asking that what future trends do you see with respect to immigration to and return immigration from the gulf particularly those working in the construction sector uh, mr sarna would you like to take this question well i think rightly the this question should be answered by anil yes <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, i could have taken the previous one but this one is anil's yes uh, let me just uh, take that again and um yes uh, i think construction in particular is a depressed sector right now in the gulf uh, i already mentioned when i was speaking that um, you know 
there is a uh, there is a certain um, apprehension about which activities would catch on uh, in the gulf given uh, you know the nature of uh, nature of what has happened in the economies after uh, the oil prices have got depressed so obviously uh, there will have to be priorities in in the economies if these policies will change uh, and how much construction is to be continued because there was already a depression in the market but the gulf economies saw this Uh, as a good way of making sure that the economy kept ticking so new projects kept on coming up in the hope uh, that in future demand would pick up so this trend has been continuing for a number of years now um, but after this um, you know uh, break which the pandemic will give the economy i think there would be a chance for the economies to reassess where they are going and where they should concentrate on at the moment i don't see construction picking up in a very large way only the essential projects will be completed um, and that is where i see that a lot of indian workers uh, unfortunately will not be required uh, especially those who are not specialized okay arjun i could really hope this uh, i i really hope ambassador uh, wadwa has uh, answered your query and very well answered indeed my next question is i think this is for uh, ambassador burle here and uh, this is a question from a student i guess the name of the person is siddharth and siddharth is asking that is this a good time to enroll in a program starting sometime in september this year considering that the student will complete the program at year down the line will things be better from an employment standpoint or permanently residency permanent residency standpoint so your thoughts on this ambassador <laughs> well i'm not surprised at the question uh but i don't have a really um uh, authoritative response for it i think we're too much up in the air uh siddhartha is that the name um i i um sympathize with your dilemma if you're talking about a personal uh choice you have to make uh now um uh I I think uh, my the best of my understanding is that most of the universities in the US um will certainly be functioning in uh the September uh semester but many of them will be doing uh their functioning online and uh as was referred to earlier long distance learning there's a major uh debate going on within educational circles and public health circles in the US now as to whether it would be safe to bring uh you know large numbers of students together on traditional campuses and have them in traditional classrooms where they're very close together and i think as of right now i'd be very cautious about uh, expecting traditional education in most of the universities to be uh in place uh, as early as this september they certainly all want to go back to that model uh, that's what their whole system is based on it's not based on online learning except for a few um, educational institutions here and um, the strong uh, motivation from the university side would be to go back to that model but i i think it's highly questionable whether this september um they will be able to do that okay okay thank you so much for that ambassador birthday uh i think my next question is from mr praveen gupta and i am sorry because we have a lot of questions right now i don't think we have enough time to answer each and every one of them so i'll answer 
i'll i'll just i'll just you know close the question answer session very soon the next session is the next question is for ambassador sarna here and the name of the person is mr praveen gupta mr gupta is asking that sir us is the most preferred long term migration destination rest are somewhere lower in the order what could be the emerging scenario as of now and a very interesting question because us has always been a dream destination for many people students and professionals alike so uh, given the current scenario where us is one of the worst affected around the world what are your thoughts on this well i think uh, I, i think the american great american dream uh, is not going to change and hopefully will get all its colors back in the years to come uh, but i think um for any potential immigrants and i'm not talking here of students i'm talking of professionals i think they'd have to be uh, very careful as to what they are going for they would they should make sure of uh, their sponsorships in advance and their their future prospects in advance because uh, i think in the in the near to medium term uh, the immigration scenario is going to remain tough and it's going to be remain even tougher if president trump is reelected but in any case it's going to remain tough and i don't mean simply in terms of getting a job and holding on i also want to tell you say that it there is also a cultural context there is also a, a a thing of indians going and working in small towns in in inner america Uh, or any any other foreigner for that matter so this thing of people coming here to take my job away is going to be there for a while so i would say that please choose with care and only go if 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 you really think that you have the backing of the companies that you're going to work with um, and if you really it's not all going to be uh, you know a bed of roses beautifully mm. answered ambassador sir and i really hope uh, mr gupta has got his answer we have a question for wonder if peter just, agrees just, with just, that yeah just one second because peter agrees with what i said i think peter wanted to say something uh, yes. just one moment yes yes i'm sorry my apologies uh well i i very much agree with what you said and might even go further that um getting back to my point about the politics of immigration in the us again not related directly to india at all for that matter um is that there's been a general trend in the US and I gather from reading that the same is true in western europe and perhaps in uh some other of the anglophone countries so uh, there's been a general pullback from the uh large scale very conventional appreciation of and support for immigration in the US and that is not just limited to one side of our political um uh, uh division here in the US it's broadly speaking and that was before this pandemic that was i think looking back i think you can see that a good part of uh Mr Trump's support during the 2016 election against uh, Hillary Clinton was his position on immigration which was basically just negative about it from all sources anybody he wanted basically pull up uh stop it if he if he could and that that got a lot of political support and resonance in the american public it, enough to get him elected anyway yes so i think uh, i i generally uh, certainly agree with the cautionary note about expecting um 
somehow that uh, only because of a, the election in November will things dramatically go back to the way they were. Uh, people here talk about the, quote, new normal, which is not a return uh, to the old normal, but some new um, attitudes and uh, legal and social and educational structures that are going to be different as a result of what uh, uh, the country has been going through the last several years. Sure. Thank you so much, Ambassador Burley. Uh, so the next question is from Shubham, and this question, although is you know uh, pertaining to a particular case, which Shubham is asking, I think I'll broaden the scope of this question, and this uh, question can be answered by this question specifically is for Mr. Sidhu, and Shubham is asking that Mr. Sidhu has experience from Canada to Europe, and what what do you think? You know, uh, uh, talking about internationally, when do you think that the international travel is going to resume? Because there are a lot of people stuck in different places. Some students who are unable to return back home, some professionals who are unable to, you know, get back to their homes. What do you feel like? When do you think the international travel will get back to normal? Well, sure, sure, sure. I was an investment banker, not a money markets or a forward market specialist. Even currency specialists will not try and forecast beyond a certain period in good times. And I think you're asking me to predict beyond that. Uh, we are all hoping that some sense of normality, normalcy returns at the earliest possible, but I do not see any large, larger scale, not large scale, larger scale travel start for at least the next five to six months from now. That is my gut feeling. It will be very, very gradual. And uh, as I said that this uh, period of uncertainty used by Navtej and the process of adjustment will take that much time because the economic travails that will start emerging after the after the health issues, the safety issues of you know, human lives, they get uh, sorted out. And that will take at least that much of time to start addressing in any sensible manner before people can even embark on more ambitious uh, programs, including of travel. I know it does not quite answer Shubham's question, but that is how the situation looks to me at the moment. Thank you so much, Mr. Sidhu. I uh, really appreciate your answer and really appreciate your honest response to this thing. Uh, I think I have just time for one last question and then we'll call it a day as I was saying. It's been nearly 40% of the uh, participants have a question from the looks of it. <laughs> which is way above normal. So, so back, sorry, back to you. No, no, I'm sure because people have so much going on in their minds that, and they, this is an, you know, unparalleled opportunity for them to, you know, connect to experts and directly hear from them about what the future holds for them. So I'm sure, you know, they are really looking forward to this session. But yes, my last question and a very interesting one indeed is from once again, Mr. Praveen Gupta, who's asking that what happens to the US position on fossil fuel, even though the Trump administration is benign to the, he uses the word dirty energy sector. <laughs> so, Ambassador <laughs> this is for you, I think. <laughs> well, I think you all know that the U.S. had become a, a, a major oil producer over the last uh, decade, and in particular, the last uh, three or four years, so that the, the, the whole industry has become a very important one here in the U.S., and the U.S. is now 
uh, what it used to import. Uh, but the recent uh, crisis in uh, the oversupply of oil internationally has had a very damaging impact on uh, the U.S. economy. That's another dimension of it, especially in the state of Texas, but more broadly than that. Um, so, uh, Mr. Trump, I'm not speaking on behalf of Mr. Trump, of course, but I, uh, his orientation has been to um, sustain traditional sources of energy and if, to the extent that he in his perception that some of them are uh, declining unacceptably he uh, talks about um, reinvesting in the old industries such as coal and in addition to the oil question and the fracking um, uh, techniques that are very widespread now in the US and in Canada um, but uh, I think most people uh, that I'm familiar with Anyway, most opinion is that um, those old industries, those old uh, conventional energy industries, are are things of the past. Not the oil industry. That that I think uh, most people think it will certainly in the short term, meaning the next ten years or so, um, play a continue to play a very substantial role in in uh, energy, both here in the U.S. and internationally. Um, but uh, so, uh, if the point of the question is, uh, will the U.S. be promoting uh, new sources of energy like solar and wind power and so on, I think under Mr. Trump, the answer is no, uh, that that will not be a priority. Under an, uh, a different administration, it would be more of a priority. There's more of an openness to exploring uh, new sources of energy. Before we uh, move on, I would like... Uh Thank you, Ivanshu. A very big thank you to the, the esteemed panelists, uh, Ambassador Anil Wadwa, Ambassador Peter Burley, Ambassador Natesh Sarna, for finding time to be with us today. And for a big thank you to speak in to organize um, quite uh, energetic in terms of the involvement of the the listeners and the speakers session today, all very relevant. We will continue to traverse through this period of uncertainty, but let us hope that there is a, a new awakening that will await all of us across the globe and things get better and we start getting back to a novel, whether it's a new novel or parts of the old novel, but at the earliest possible. And to all our panelists here, I would like to extend on behalf of speaking team and on behalf of all the attendees who are present here, my heartiest uh, gratitude to you for joining us today. Thank you so much for your very, very, very precious time. I'm sure all the attendees have who have joined us today have taken some very important lessons, some very important learnings from this session. And uh, I, I mean, uh, thank you so much for, to everyone for joining us once again. Mm -hmm.